Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. There's a story in the book of Mark that we read uh, weeks ago from Mark chapter 3 that goes like this. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of the religious leaders were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal the man on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do, good or evil, to save life or kill, but they The religious leaders remained silent. And Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. So my wife teaches at a a small private Christian school. My daughter attends there about 15 minutes away from Covenant. My son, who is um, 14, has special needs, came home on Wednesday uttering the phrase, I'd never heard him use the phrase lockdown drill um, it took me a while to figure out what he was saying. I thought it was fun, and I just sort of imagined um, him in a scenario like that. And I've, I've been looking for a word to describe uh, the feeling, um, the predominant feeling this week. And this combination, when it says that Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed... That combo pretty much sums it up. The Greek words are interesting. Go ahead and put those up if you would. The first one, anger, is the word orges. And it's not an anger that erupts. It's not an anger that is off the handle. It is a settled disposition in opposition to something. It's the kind of thing that Jesus doesn't let fly, but it's the kind of thing that Jesus always is. He is always opposed to what he's seeing. That anger is mixed with grief, and I'm not going to try to pronounce that one. But that combination of anger and grief, I stumbled upon that and thought, that's, that's, that's what I'm feeling. I don't know which is the more predominant emotion, but I feel both. And so this morning we just thought maybe it's appropriate to just talk a little bit about grief and a little bit about anger. And then we're still going to do questions if you want. And then we're going to take communion differently today. We'll have people at the stations today saying this is the body and this is blood for you. And we'll have people around the room just available to pray. So just a word about grief. Um, I want to go to really the, the best memory verse in the Bible in John chapter 11. Some of you know the verse of which I speak, but you will know it when we read it. Jesus is dear friends with this family. Lazarus has fallen ill and died prior to our text, Jesus has decided to let that happen. And it's a very confusing thing because Jesus could have done something about it, as Mary and Martha will soon remind him. On Jesus' arrival, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. And that four days is significant There was a Jewish mystic tradition that said the spirit of the body of the person hovered over the body for three days. And if you were empowered to do so, resurrection was possible. But on the fourth day, the spirit departed and resurrection was impossible. So that four day number adds to the significance of what Jesus is about to do. Now, Bethany, it's a village we've encountered a lot through Mark. 
was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. Now, the Jewish mourning practice back in those days and still today is something called Shiva or Shiva. And the, the Hebrew word means seven. It's the idea that the community would gather and be present to the mourning family for seven days. And, and the practice is called the sitting Shiva. And you've got to be really careful how you pronounce that. But even today, what will happen is that the community will invade the mourner's house. And there are professional mourners who will just give words and weeping and groaning to the anguish that the the bereaved family is feeling. And they just don't leave. For seven days, they're just present. If you want to talk, they talk. If it's silent, they're silent. They take care of all the mundane chores around the house. And it's a really profound practice. And so Jews had come to Mary and Martha's home and were doing this. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed where? At home. Right? Sitting Shiva. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. (laughs) Oh, the guilt trip. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Hint, hint. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know he'll rise again at the resurrection. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even though they die, uh, excuse me, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who's come into the world. After she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher's here is asking for you. So Mary, when she heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews, who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, what did they do? They followed her. That's what they would do. Whatever the mourner was doing, the rest of the people in the home would do. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. And I love that that is the very natural question, right? God, come on, all-powerful, all-good being, why don't you do something about all of this? When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord. And then the famous memory verse. Jesus wept. And our familiarity with this robs it of all of its impact. Because when it says that Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews weeping. That's a different kind of weeping than the weeping that Jesus was doing. There were professional mourners there who would, whose job it was, was to weep, believe it or not. But the kind of weeping that Jesus does, it's a different word that's used. And it's a very individual word. In other words, Jesus is fully aware he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And still weeps. I find that mind-blowing. His power didn't rule out his sorrow. His ability to heal the guy in five minutes, five minutes from this point, right, didn't rule out the fact that this hit him full on. Right, the fact that we all have this general theory that, yep, good wins in the end, and that Jesus You know, we'll all rise again in Jesus. That doesn't rule out the absolute and utter devastation that so many are feeling. I just, that Jesus wept. All-powerful, all-knowing, Jesus wept. 
And there's this tradition that somehow developed in the church that says, when we approach God, we have to be polite. And that our grieving is somehow a lack of faith. And it's so much nonsense. Because Jesus weeping, that introduces and personifies a biblical tradition called the tradition of lament. It's not popular in the American church. We love everything wrapped up with a cliche and a pretty red bow, right? You can name something that's going horrible and then say, yeah, but it'll be fine. Jesus, you know, Jesus is in control. And we just slap cliches on things. And it's so wonderful that the Bible itself doesn't do this. Jesus didn't stand there offering religious philosophy. He wept in the face of that unimaginable sorrow. So I want to talk, as we talk about grieving, I want to talk about lament. Lament is this, lament is different than complaining. Lament is where we assume the goodness of God, and we assume God's power and care for the world. And within that covenantal context, we name what is out of order in the world around us. That's what lament is. And the Bible's full of it. So I just want to give some examples. Psalm 137. This is written as the Jews are being pulled into exile, away from their home. And this image... This is what I thought about. By the rivers of Babylon, so they're in exile, the Jews. By the river, rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept when we remembered Jerusalem. There on the trees, we hung our harps, the harps that they would use to worship their God. They put them away. Because there in Babylon, our captors asked us for songs, our tormentors asked us for songs of joy. And they would say, sing us one of the songs of Zion, mocking them. And then this question, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my, my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. Lament, go ahead to the quote. Lament is not just expressing emotion, but naming what is in the way of human beings thriving. Simple acts of lament expose these conditions, name them, and make them visible for remedy. And here's the point. Lament is the fierce and fearless naming of what is wrong. It's when the people of God look around at the world and hang their harps. How can we sing when this is happening. Or Psalm 43. Vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. How does that resonate? Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by my enemy? Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the lyre. Oh God, my God. Why, my soul, are you so, da so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Lament is honest. Lament, next slide. Their refusals to settle for the way things are. Their acts of relentless hope that believes that no situation falls outside Yahweh's capacity for transformation. My friend Susie recommended Habakkuk. How long, Lord, must I cry for help? but you do not listen. Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. 
Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. What's the Bible doing here? Giving us words and permission to name ruthlessly the injustice of our world. To not be polite and cleaned up and theologically on point. Jesus wept. And in his weeping, even though he knows what's about to happen, he invites us to take a similar posture. To not clean it up, to not force it to resolve, to just sit in it. And to say to God, where are you in all of this? One last quote. Lament is not a replacement for action. Lament precedes action. Lament in the Christian tradition is that form of prayer that allows us to sum up the pain of the earth and bring it to heaven's gates. So part of what the role of the church is in times like this is to name what is out of order and what is wrong. To not have to clean it up, to not tie it in a bow, to not offer cliches, but to sit, shiva, with the pain of the world around us. Does that make sense? But it's not just grief many of us are feeling. There's anger. Back to Mark. Jesus looked at them in anger and deeply distressed. Anger is a settled disposition against something. The deep distress, that's, a, that's grief. At the stubborn hearts of the religious leaders who refused to allow Jesus to heal the man with the shriveled hand on the Sabbath. He looked at them and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Jesus gets angry. The two most important questions to ask when we see the anger of Jesus is what does he get angry at and then what does he do with his anger? So in this instance, what is he angry at? The religious leaders who had a rule that said you could not heal somebody on the Sabbath unless their life was in danger. The man's hand was not a life-threatening injury, but Jesus healed him. And Jesus gets angry. What did Jesus do with his anger? What did he do with it? He healed the man. Does my anger lead to healing or does it lead to breaking? Anger is this really curious emotion. I don't know about you, but it's, I can be totally exhausted and then get angry about something and have rocket fuel in my soul. It starts with wanting to break something. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I remember we were, this is just how dumb I am. So many examples to pull from, but in this instance, we were ready to pull out of a little parking lot where my son was playing soccer and a truck barreled through at about 60 miles an hour, a red light. And Justy had, my wife, had just missed pressing the accelerator and I was just getting ready to say, hey, it's a green light when this truck barreled through. And we would have been utterly destroyed. And so, in my godliness, I jumped out of the van and ran after the truck. Well, let me tell you how it worked out. First of all, I realized about 25 feet in 
that flip-flops are not the most useful tool of chase. And then the, the truck stopped at a stoplight. And I thought, yes, yes, Lord. <laughs> and there was a voice. It, it could have been the Spirit. It could have just been my own, the shred of me that has any sort of common sense that said, what are you going to do when you get there? What exactly? And my thought was I was going to throw my flip-flops at him <laughs> in protest. I'm not normally a sprinter, but in that moment, there was rocket fuel. You all know this. That's why we're so, that's why outrage is so addicting, right? Because it moves us. But when I look at what Jesus was angry at, and I look at what I'm angry at, there's a really big difference. In Mark 10, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them, right? God bless them. When Jesus saw this, he was what? Indignant. Anger mixed with grief. He said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Verse 16, and he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and what? So what does Jesus get mad at? The stupidity of the disciples. And what does he do in response? He blesses. Does my anger bless? One of the most famous examples of Jesus, we read this, uh, I don't know how many weeks, I don't even care at this point. Verse 15 of chapter 11. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts, began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. He would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written? So he's teaching them as he's doing this. Remember, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Instead, you've made it a den of robbers, and den of robbers comes from Jeremiah, where people thought just because they were in the temple, they could get away with injustice. What was Jesus mad at? The corruption of the temple. And what does he do in response? He symbolically shuts it down and then presents himself as its alternative. So you see this theme with Jesus' anger, right? What's Jesus get mad at? And many of us really share in those feelings. But the point is, what does he do with his anger? Susie was telling me, about a um, kind of a spiritual director friend of hers who distinguished between being angry at something and being angry for something. Angry at is what I go to. Who is to blame? And I want to punish them. Angry for something is that looking ahead to a state of affairs that I want to fight for. Where it's not so much there's an individual enemy, but there are obstacles in the way of achieving that state of affairs. You see the difference? I do, even if you don't. I saw no nods. And so what's, what's a Christian response to all of this? Of course, we can debate policies, of course. But we don't want to rush through the simple weeping that is right and proper. And the anger mixed with grief that moves us to action. And the lament that invites us to bring the pain that we see in ourselves and in the world to God in honesty and not politeness. 
I don't know if this is a, a true story. Most of the stories I tell probably I could say that about. But I, I heard about a village somewhere in Austria. So there are so many great stories that begin with, there was a village in Austria. But what this illustrates is true even if the story's not. That upon the death of a family member, the community would fill that family member's home and sing that family member to sleep. And then while that family member was asleep or that family was sleeping, they would go and they would rearrange the furniture in their houses and in the village so that when the bereaved family woke up, they saw that the village knew that everything was different. And they'd physically symbolized that by changing things around them. And that's what we do together as a church community. We witness grief. We don't clean it up. We don't slap cliches on it, but we see it. And we recognize for a lot of people the world's entirely different. Two weeks from now, we'll be on to something else, as tragic as that is. But for them, they need to be seen over and over and over. So friends, um, I don't know how to do the question part, but it seemed really important to do it. And so we just want to open it up, either for texting or questions. As Jesus people, because we're committed to the Sermon on the Mount, there are certain postures that we have to fight through to get to Jesus' likeness, right? Scapegoating's not allowed for us. Demonizing, not allowed for us. Passivity, not allowed for us. We all go there, but hopefully we move through those things into two postures, a settled opposition to this kind of evil in all of its forms, and to the place of lament that moves us into action. So, any thoughts? Anything you want to talk about? Any questions you have? Yeah, wait, wait for the microphone if you would. Yes, sir. And I don't expect an answer, but... Those if, are the best questions. If you look at transgenderism or those that... Could you claim, hold the mic up a little bit? If you look at transgenderism or those who identify yep. <clears throat> as transgender, yep. it's up over a thousand percent in the last 10 years. Yeah. So my question is, number one, do you think the culture has any part to blame in that? Yeah. Yes or no? If yes, what do you think we as Christians do about it. Yeah. If no, what would be your hypothesis on that uh, yeah. increase in numbers? So my question to you would be, why are we talking about them right now? A fair question. I mean, because that was part of the tragedy that happened. And if we don't look at the reason why it happened and sort of dissect it, we'll never be able to come to a conclusion on what's the reason behind it. Yeah. But it seems really premature to have that conversation when not even a week has gone by. Not only that, if we really want to point out the transgendered issue, then let's talk about all the white guys that shoot up people too. So I really don't want to answer that question, sir. I think it's a legit question, but that can so easily go into scapegoating, and that is not appropriate for us. I think the worst question we can ask right now is who's at fault? That's not a Jesus posture. I asked if the culture was at fault. It's, it's, it's easy. It's no, easy. you said, is transgenderism at fault? No, I didn't. I said, is the culture at fault? I quoted a stat that said it's up over 1,000% in the last 10 years. You can look it up yourself. I, no, I believe you. So, the so, point so is... I'm not saying, hold on, let me finish. Let me finish. No. You're the pastor, and you're smarter than I am, I'm sure. I'm saying, <laughs> no, is, I'm not is, saying is, that. is the culture at fault for this in any way, and if it is, what as Christians should be our posture to do about it? I have a That's response. all I'm asking. Can I respond? Yeah. Um, 
I understand what you're saying. Like, there's a time to grieve, and that's what we're doing right now. But to answer your question, yes. And only yes if we, if we admit that we're all part of the culture. We've all fed into the culture. Those who are in the world and those who are not of the world, whatever, however we describe it, we are all part of the culture. And it, it's really easy. I mean, we should, I'm glad that you asked the question because a lot of people have been asking the question. And it is a fair question because it's an issue that's been, been brought up. But I think what we, as Jesus people, need to, um, the posture that we take is, is the posture of grieving with those who are grieving. That person, I mean, yes, there's been 90 school shootings this year alone in 2023. On Monday, there were only 86 days in the whole year. And of those 90, only one of them was from someone who was, that was caused by someone who's transgender. So let's table that, but then let's look at the fact that like a person doesn't wake up and um, decide that they're gonna do that one day. There's a whole lifetime of brokenness that leads up to that point. And how it is expressed and how it comes out in a person is there's so many layers to that. So I think what you're getting at is that this moment in time right now is a time of lament and grieving. And if we're gonna talk about that subject at some point, we have to talk about it with people in mind that we're talking about human beings. And, um, and that's the posture that we wanna take. And it's really hard to take that posture right now when we're feeling so many things. Well, and the thing that I don't know if you're saying or not, the reason I get angry is because there are some who call themselves Christians who've turned this tragedy into a license to say the transgendered community is coming for us. And uh, that is not a Christian posture. I'm glad. I'm saying that's how I heard it. I asked you the culture. You missed the whole question, so we'll we'll discuss this another time. Okay. You, 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 you took your bias and you moved it to me blaming transgenderism when I did not mean it that way. So we'll just let it go. Okay. Hey, I have a, one from the text line that I think might redirect this conversation a little bit. Um, and I thought this was good because it speaks to what you were talking about. Why is grief allowed to exist without action but anger can't? Can we just be angry at injustice for a while without moving to fix it next? Oh, man. It's, I thought that was insightful. Yeah. Hard, but insightful. Do you want yeah. me to read it again? Yeah, would you? Sure. Why is grief allowed to exist without action, but anger can't? Can we not just be angry at injustice for a while without moving to fixing it next? Yeah, I wonder about that because it seems like part of our image bearing is the move to fix it. For sure. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like the, the biblical picture is of a God who says, I'm looking for cooperative participants in the world. And I was watching, this is the dumbest thing ever, but I was watching George Burns, Oh God, Part One. Oh, yes. Any of you familiar with this? And... You have to be 80 or old. I know, I know. This was like, I think it was in the 70s. But John Denver, who stars in this movie, asked God, hey, so why do you allow wars? And the, John, or the God character, played by George Burns, looks at him and says, well, why do you allow it? And there's some really profound theology there. I think part of the, the act and movement of acting is part of our image bearing, that we were meant to form culture and um, to act in response to the injustice we see in the world. So I think that's a a beautiful thing. Do you want to add something to that? Yes. I also think that our image bearing is not just individual, but it's collective. So when there, when, you know, there, there are people who this week couldn't get past the grief because they were so close to it and mm-hmm. they just needed to sit and be sad and oh, be I see. Yep. distressed and lament and cry and weep. And there were people who were close to those people who needed to go and sit Shiva with them and mm-hmm. be with them and just be quiet and still. And then there are those, there, there are those people who 
have been touched by it and affected by it and are angry and grieving who maybe weren't so close to the people but felt the unction to go and, and march and, and make their voices known and to contact senators and do those things. And so it's like if you look at the whole body as the image of Christ mm -hmm. and, and when one part is broken and hurting, the other part feels it too, but everybody has a part in the grief. And so mm -hmm. I think there is a time where we sit and we do nothing for some people, and there is a time for other people. I kept thinking all week long, if that were my child, and I was flat on the floor and couldn't get up in grief, I would hope that somebody would be out there fighting for me. Yeah, that's really good. Okay, a couple more. Yep, go ahead. Quick question, Mike. Um, it might profession, I dealt with a lot of anger because I saw a lot of things and I did different things like that. As a Christian moving forward, um, especially dealing with anger type situations, um, you know, the Bible references, don't be angry, don't let the sun go down, yeah. you know, so on and so forth. What's your best recommendation with, um, with regards to anger? Because uh, I'm desensitized now, whereas I don't get angry about it anymore. I just, mm -hmm. I see it as hope and, and I'm sort of that mindset that you mentioned in the beginning, like we slap a cliche to it, like, oh, God's coming. So I kind of subscribe to that because I found yeah. it makes me happier inside to yeah. feel that way. Then the anger sure. that I would naturally manifest by, by thinking about what it's really about. But what's your, your best recommendation on, on yeah. dealing with that anger? Oh, well, again, there are two different words for anger. One is the anger that flies off the handle, and we don't see that in Jesus. Instead, we see this like settled disposition against evil in all of its forms. And that's the anger I think we're invited to embody. So for me, when I get the anger that flies off the handle, I have to just sit through it without doing anything. Because I don't make great decisions when I'm feeling that way. <laughs> so I actually, I mean, it, this, I don't know how wise this is. Um, exercise and journaling helps me a lot because I have to survive that impulse initially to then get to a more reflective place. I think that there is, a, um, one of the things that's surprising, I think there is a Christian place for anger. Absolutely. We see it in Yahweh. We see it in Jesus. But the way that anger is manifested is in through blessing and healing of the world rather than in the further breaking of it. Does that make sense? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how best to answer that. I'm still really in process on that. My, um, I'm in counseling, and the, the, the thing that my counselor and I keep talking about is so much of my faith is here, and it's not, I don't, I don't know how, to integrate it with the rest of me. Can, so I get, keep going, and I have something to say about this. Oh, go, go ahead. Um, I know, I'm sorry, I interrupted you, go. No, no, it's good. No, I want to hear more about your heart. Yeah. <laughs> it feels broken now, it hurts. No, no, but Kev, I know you've, you've, you've experienced a whole lot of learning in this similar way, so no, go ahead. No, I want to hear yours. No, no. I don't even remember where I was going at this I'm point. Sorry. No, that's okay. Yes, yeah. So, so anger for me is a symptom, not a root. So it's a it's something I go and learn to pay attention to and go. Oh, okay. What's and sometimes I don't even know. I'll just find myself angry for no reason and go. Okay, and I'm learning to be curious about that instead of feeling bad about it or ashamed of it or whatever, I get curious about, oh, okay, well, where's that? Where's that coming from? Go ahead, Kevin. I'm sorry I interrupted No, no, you're great. No, you're great. it's important for us to hear your heart. Um, for me, what I've learned over the last couple of years, same problem you had, head, heart, um, disconnected. Um, anger's always connected to another emotion. Anger never is in you alone. And so... Once you start to realize that anger is attached to another emotion, you have to figure out what emotion it's attached to. 
So it could be attached to hurt, it could be attached to loneliness, it could be attached to um, fear, it could be a number of things. And, and once you realize that is, the, that is the source of the anger, is actually the secondary emotion that's attached to it. Actually, anger is the secondary emotion. Then you find yourself dealing with really why you're angry. Mm. You're afraid. You're hurt by somebody or something. You're lonely, whatever it might be, and it manifests itself in anger. And if you can find that spot, mm. it moves you to a place of better healing and also understanding yourself better. Yeah, um, that's good, so, that's yeah. great. For me, oftentimes, it's just fear. That's one of my mm. primary emotions. Yeah. So. That's really good. Hopefully that's helpful. Um, got one over there. Okay. Which is perfect timing. So off of fear, I have, I'm a mom of three young kids, five, yeah. seven, and nine, kindergarten, second grade, and third grade. And this week, I would say <clears throat> I have not embodied anger, but I have embodied fear. Oh, I send my kids course. to school. Uh, my kids didn't want to go to school. So I've been praying a lot but i've i've almost found disappointment and fear with christ and in the same sense of i don't i want to pray but i want to also say i'm scared like how do i move past this so you said your son came home saying lockdown i'm curious to know your response and how we move forward with our young children kind of during this phase yeah yeah i'm utterly disqualified to answer some of these, but we want to witness each other's questions and wrestles, right? Um, first of all, I would, I would want to push just a little bit against the shame that comes with being afraid and go, most of us over 40 never had to, that was never a thing. You would never think about not being safe at school, the, the biggest worry you'd have is a bully or a bad teacher. So I, I've, I cannot enter into what that must be like for our kids. Um, but I, I certainly think fear would be a great response to it, right? And so in the scriptures, I don't think that, that Jesus would look at our fear and go, hey guys, you really need to get over this. I got this. Because so often we hear the Jesus saying, I got this to mean nothing bad will happen. And that's never anything that Jesus says. And so the invitation for me is to believe that there are worse things that can happen than dying. And that's so cliche to say, you know, when Jesus talks about, you know, don't be afraid of the, don't be afraid of the one that can kill your body, but be afraid of the one who can send you to hell, which we can talk about that all day long. <laughs> but there's a sense in which um, I have no choice but to act in a way that doesn't guarantee any outcome, right? Getting in the car, And so the first thing I would want to do is just to sit and say, let's, let's be curious about all of that. And the second thing I would want to do is say, it's okay that you would feel this way. Absolutely. And it's not bad that you would feel this way. I think the concern comes when fear dominates us so much that it cancels out uh, faith. And not faith that bad things won't happen but faith that even if they do, we're still safe in God's world, which sounds so weird to say, you know? I don't know. I don't know. I'm thrilled you asked that. And sir, I just, I need to, first of all, apologize. I didn't want to take anything out on you. I want to be a very gracious person. And... When, when I heard you mention transgenderism, what came to mind were people, not you, who have really weaponized that this week. And so I was inappropriately reacting to that, not to you. So I apologize. It's not, it's not I wouldn't call that a bias. I would call that we're not allowed to scapegoat. 
Yeah. Yeah. That is somehow bred an extra thousand percent rise in transgenderism right. over the last ten years because there's a lot of morbidity that's associated with that lifestyle. Yeah, oh, totally, and totally. Cut off. Yeah, hold, and hold on. And then having all hold kinds on. of psychological issues. What is the response that the church should have yeah. to a culture that sort of has any? Blame in this tenfold rise right. in 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 this. That's all. The, that was my question. It wasn't about the shooting per se, and it was probably out of line, so to speak. And it should have been on a different well occasion. I apologize for being angry but, with you. But oh, that's fine. You can be angry with me. I don't care. I'm I glad you don't care. care. I mean, it's, it's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. Lots of others. Okay. My goodness. Yes. I know. All right. We'll try to do this. Sorry, I'll be quick. No, um, you're, no, no, sorry. I just want to respond to the fear. I'm a public educator and a mother. Um, oh, well, And there so you this go. hits deep for many years for me. Yeah. Um, so I have felt both fear and deep anger for probably 10 years since I've been in public education because mm. this isn't the first time that I felt this way. Yeah. Um, and I'm realizing that fear can go two ways, right? So we can use our fear as a way to propel us for more protection and wanting to keep everybody safe. Mm -hmm. And we can propel our fear to act and ask Jesus, what are our next steps? Um, and I don't have an answer for you, but I yeah. want you to know I sit with that every day um, as I fear for my life. And then I also, I have young, young children, but I know eventually thinking about that. I've, I've lived through so many lockdown drills, so many trainings, and I constantly go back to, yeah. it shouldn't be this way. Yeah. We should not disrupt our education for, and our children's rights to an education to lockdown, but that's our reality, and what are we going to do about it? So I think that's the question I keep coming back to. What am I going to do with this fear versus just sitting in the fear? Yeah. And there's no shame in that fear because I think a lot of times it actually propels us, kind of what you were saying, Mike. It's a great word. It really propels us yeah. to do things um, on behalf of our kids, and we model that for our kids. And so I think that's what it makes me think, what do I want for my kids? Yeah. Because yeah. that's kind of the next step in that. Okay. Let's just do, I, I know there's so many. I mean, what? Yeah, yeah, true. Kevin will be in his... Kevin discussion class. Um, let's just do a couple more real quick. She... Um, so we've been talking about forgiveness a lot in the last few weeks, and it's definitely too soon for this, these particular events that have taken place this week, but how do you begin to start forgiving as Jesus calls us to within our lives and within these events that are happening yeah. and even against strangers. Right. Um, I'm sure many of us didn't know many of the people who have done any of the shootings right. um, this year. Yeah. But how do you begin to start the forgiveness process? And I guess my, my fear is that I'll, like some people, me, We'll never reach those points. Um, so, like, what's that process look like for the forgiveness and yeah. moving forward in life and in these kind of events? That's such a great question. Thank you. Forgiveness biblically means to yield your right to vengeance. It doesn't mean to feel great. It doesn't mean that I like this person. It doesn't mean that I forget what they did. It doesn't mean that we're reconciled. It means that I yield my right to hurt them back. So I can get to that place with people for sure. Because what I want to do is hurt, right? At least me. In my impulsive anger, I want to punish. And forgiveness is yielding my perceived right to punish and trusting that justice in God's, in the deepest, fullest biblical sense, will be done. But it takes an incredible act of faith. 
to do that? It's a great question. Yeah. Hey, can you hear me? Oh, yeah. Um, I am a uh, self-proclaimed blasphemer, or I guess, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, scapegoater, you know? And so uh, I just want to know what ta practically, tactically, do you think we could do to be a blessing this week? Anything yeah, you yeah, would yeah. suggest we do? Oh. Um, as practical as possible. I, I can only speak for me. Uh, thank you for saying that. I think we all, I mean, I think that's the natural grief, anger, and then soon behind that is, okay, whose fault is this? Um, I find, um, so let me give a different example and come back to it. Uh, the blessing those who persecute you line from the Sermon on the Mount. The only way I know to tangibly apply that is to actually pray for the person by name. And I don't mean it. <laughs> God bless this person in Jesus' name, and I'm done. And if I stick with that long enough, I do find that instead of what is natural, which is demonizing, scapegoating, I find myself at a more neutral place where I'm um, willing to imagine family dynamics, personal histories, you know, all those sorts of things to just simply say, okay, I yield my right to my anger right now. And, um, and that's really the only thing I know. The only thing I know, I mean, partially we don't wanna feed, right? The, the energy that is in our culture towards blaming one group or another. But the other part is for me, the only way I know to do that is praying specifically by name for those who I perceive as enemies. It's a great question. Hi, um, very nervous to talk on the microphone. Um, just wanted to first say thank you for opening the floor for questions because this is really hard. I didn't want to. I, no, I didn't I, want to. I can I'm imagine. Not, yep, <laughs> so yep. Thank you. Cause I'm I, nervous too. I mean, you don't know what's coming at you, you know? So um, I, I guess I've heard a lot of um, kind of phrases and statements like, well, this is the world and, you know, evils. This is just going to get worse before Jesus comes back. So I guess my question is, as a Christian, yes, we know evil is in the world, but does that mean we just do nothing? Like, it's just, it's the balance of like, well, it's just gonna get worse, so let's just let everything burn t to the ground. Like, I don't, I don't understand that. And, totally. you know, so like, yeah. I see a lot of like, where is, how, why is this controversial? I don't understand, you know? Yeah, yeah. People protesting, people being loud about it. How is that a bad thing? How is that not yeah. the response of the church, you know? Yeah. I don't know, that's my... No, first of all, thank you for being courageous to talk on the microphone. But secondly, um, I have to say, one of the great tragedies of some of the words of Jesus, they've been used to justify passivity. Um, but all the counterexamples that Jesus gives about someone slapping you on the right cheek, turn to them the other, or do not try to compete with evildoers. We read those as passive, but in an honor-shame culture, those are very active and creative forms of goodness. The problem with the American church, not American church, Grant, but the church, has been that um, our moral imaginations exist on two poles. Um, and the poles are either we don't do anything or we respond to violence with violence. And what Jesus invites us to is to surrender that moral imagination and to embrace creative goodness where I don't know. I mean, I remember I was on a police call. I was a chaplain and I don't ever want to tell stories that make me look good because you all know better. But we were confronting a homeless guy and he was acting very strangely. He was obviously mentally ill. There were three police cars and yours truly sitting there and it was a standoff and I don't know why or what in the world compelled me to do this, but I went up and just hugged the guy. Just hugged him, didn't say a word, just hugged him. And the whole situation changed, right? He starts sobbing and then it's a different dynamic. And I, I say that not to <laughs> say how virtuous I am, 
But I say that to say that was an instance where my moral, moral imagination expanded beyond the normal binaries of self-protection and I have to respond with violence. And, you know, we can get into self-defense and all those wonderful things another day. But um, in that instance, and I think the posture of Jesus is to consider alternative ways. Now, I don't see any. I see the whole New Testament full of exhortations for the church to do stuff in the world. But we don't play by the same rules. So when the church does world stuff, baptized in Jesus' name, it just hurts everybody, including the church. But when the church does the Jesus stuff, and, and is willing to risk its own self-protection, then there's stuff that, that I think we have not yet really considered. So I think that's a, such a, a wonderful, wonderful point. You want to you wanna do more? You want to wrap it? What do you want to do? Um, we can wrap it, but I just have something that I feel the need to say. Well. And it, it's going to come out really clunky. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're full of clunky. Yeah. It's okay. So... The beauty of this community is that we have people from every part from those two poles inward here, mm -hmm. you know? And, um, you know, like, Bill, is a, you're a physician and you're a healer, and we've heard from a bunch of doctors this week that they want to heal people, not hurt people. And um, that's a, I can feel your, your anger for that, and I love that. You know, and so there's people from all different, in all different places of what they think about everything from, is this demonic? Is this, is this um, because of the law? I mean, like there's so many because, 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 and we're all in a different, a lot of us are in different places about what we think and what we believe, but we gather here together because we all believe that Jesus has the answers. And so we're here all together to face that direction, no matter what direction we come from. And so there are people in this church who are transgender. There are people in this church who have children and that are transgender. There are teachers and educators that, and counselors that have students and clients. And so this is a thing that, that, that touches everybody. And so if, as soon as we start talking about it like a thing or an issue or you know, whatever, and we lose sight of that we are all a people that are meant to be gathered together, that are meant to be reconciled to Christ, and that the prayer of Jesus was that, that people would know us by our love and our unity, not our uniformity. That's the thing we have to look at. And so I, I just know that we all have a lot of feelings right now, and those feelings are good, and we need to let them inform us, and we need to let them move us towards action when that time is necessary, but we also need to consider that, you know, this is messy, and Jesus enters into messes. So I don't, I just felt like I needed to say that. So um, I think the band is going to come back up, <laughs> and we are going to have... Um, just a few moments of, of um, instrumental, reflective music to, just to catch our breaths and to regulate ourselves if we need it. Um, the reason why we're doing communion differently today is because we felt today more than ever that communion is an embodied practice, that we come to the table, that we're all welcome to the table of Christ because that body and the blood of the new covenant and the invitation to come as we are is what unites us. And so it's, we felt it was important today that we don't do it just as individuals walking up, but that you come and you make eye contact and you receive it from another person because that's what we feel is needed right now. So, so God, I just, I pray and pray and pray and pray that your presence would be made known magnificently and peacefully and graciously to every single person in this room, every single person watching online, and everybody in all the other churches and at home and all the other places today that are grieving, particularly for the families. And I pray that you would meet us all where we are and join us collectively to reflect your goodness through a horrible time. 
in Jesus' name. Amen.